experiencing some domestic violence in your narcissistic abuse relationship, many times the line from emotional and coercive control crosses over to a domestic violence situation. So many of my clients that have had this happen um, really don't know what the rules are. What do we do? How do we handle this? So today I'm going to bring in a friend of mine and um, she is a, her name is Sandy Capanella and she is here in Boulder, Colorado near me. And she works for the district attorney's office and the domestic violence task force. And we've met a few times and man, could we talk. So today we are jam packed in this, this lesson to teach you when domestic violence creeps into an emotionally abusive relationship. What do you do? What are the rules? How do you protect yourself? What evidence do you each collect? Just so many questions that I'm going to, to, to pose to her so that you get the information of what are your options if it goes this direction. So my name is Tracy Malone. I'm the founder of NarcissistAbuseSupport.com. I am an author, I am a coach, and I am here to help you. Today, we're going to start by talking to Sandy and find out what you can do if domestic violence creeps into your emotionally abusive relationship. What to do, how to get out. Let's welcome Sandy. Hi, Sandy. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you're here. Thank you. I'm very excited too. It's so great being here. Would you start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? I think that's so important to understand the basis of this topic we're going to talk about. Sure. Thank you. Um, I'm Sandy Campanella and I am currently um, a domestic violence specific investigator at the Boulder DA's office. Uh, before that, um, my life has been this long and winding road. I spent some time in the, in the army. I have a bachelor's in history and I have a master's in history with a concentration in women's history. And um, after that, there were various jobs along the way. And then uh, in 2003, I started with Longmont Police Department and I spent a few years in patrol a few years as a school resource officer in two middle schools. And then I spent the last 10 years at Longmont Police Department as a detective in the domestic violence unit. And from there, I went to the Boulder DA's office in November of 2020 and helped create the unit that I'm currently assigned to, which is the domestic violence acute response team. And it's a fantastic assignment and I love my work. And um, before we get started, I just want to point out that although I work for the Boulder DA, who is a fantastic leader, that my opinions and the things that we're going to discuss today are based on many years of experience, academic research and training and all of those things, and not necessarily words coming out of our district attorney's mouth. Okay, perfect. That's really good to know because you do represent Boulder DA and and you know this is this is stuff when we met uh almost a month ago we met yeah. um, we could have talked and talked and talked um you know the domestic violence is so close to my heart as as you know that I I went through that and um went on both sides from the victim to the perpetrator and so mm -hmm. I kind of got the experience of understanding the coordination of that even before I learned about narcissistic abuse so I got involved with the coalition against domestic violence here in Colorado I'm still on a survivor caucus with them and um I made 80% of my friends are from the caucus and you know will be forever friends so um again close to my heart and you know, my audience is victims of narcissistic abuse. As you know, this is emotional, financial, sexual, um, legal abuse. And often, I don't want to even give a percentage number, but often they're, they're, they cross the line to domestic violence. So mm -hmm. can we get a, a, a grounding level one? What is domestic violence? What is DV? Um, you know, how do you, how do you define that for us? So in Colorado, the, the legal uh, definition of domestic violence as taken out of the Colorado revised statutes is approximately the act or threatened act of violence upon a person with whom the actor has or is been involved in an intimate relationship. In Colorado, the intimate relationship is defined as current or former 
um, married couples, current or former dating partners, or people who share a biological child, whether or not they were ever married or lived together. Um, Colorado does uh, um, appreciate and, and acknowledges and considers um, um, same-sex um, partners and relationships. And, and so it's not only that act or threatened act of violence um, per the statute, it's also, um, it's also any, um, any crime that can be committed against a person for the purposes of coercion, control, intimidation, punishment, or revenge. So essentially any crime in the Colorado revised statutes could be considered an act of domestic violence if it's done as an act or threatened act of violence, or if it's any other crime committed for one of those five reasons, coercion, control, intimidation, punishment, or revenge. Mm -hmm. So really, um, when someone says that's that's a domestic violence, someone will say, oh, someone, someone did a DV on me. The, the domestic violence portion, they usually mean that they were assaulted in some capacity. That's usually what it means on, you know, lay, lay person's terms. But really what it means from a legal perspective is that that crime that is being investigated or charged has been committed between two people who were or are involved in an intimate relationship. So that's really what domestic violence is. It's, it's an identifier that demonstrates the nature of the relationship of the actors in this particular crime. So, so on that, I have a question. So the, the law in Colorado is, if you've ever been in a, in, in a domestic violence relationship and some, the police get called, someone has to go to jail for this, right? So some level of that, that, that law, is mm -hmm. that, no, go ahead. In Colorado, domestic violence crimes, uh -huh are mandatory arrest. Mandatory. However, however, you have to develop probable cause, which is saying that a crime was committed and that this person most likely committed that crime. So you do need probable cause. And when it's domestic violence, then it is a mandatory arrest once you arrive at probable cause. Mm. However, there are also mitigating factors such as, um, self-defending victims. Um, there's a predominant aggressor analysis. So even though one person may have committed this actual offense, there might be more to it. And it might be that they are a self-defending victim or things like that. Mm -hmm. So if it doesn't, if, if an officer or an investigation does not necessarily show who the predominant aggressor is or show that there is probable cause, then there is not an arrest. So there's that evidence okay. threshold that has to be met. So that's kind of, so that, that statement that if, if there's a domestic violence incident in Colorado, then someone must go to jail. That's, that's kind of, kind of true and kind of overstated. So there's much more to it than that so but thank you that's a great question and it comes up very frequently yeah that's why i wanted to, to like make clear and and not all states have this law and i know you don't know states every state's law but a lot of states don't necessarily have this law so people right. who are listening from other countries or other places please check your own state we're talking about colorado here and some of this may cross a line where your state does not really you know have the laws this specific way um, right. And, and I do want to point out, quite honestly, with domestic violence, it has different definitions in different states. In other states, domestic violence can include um, any, any people who live inside the home. So domestic violence can, can include parents on children, children on parents, siblings on siblings, that kind of thing. In Colorado, that, that is not the case. Colorado is strictly current or former intimate partners. Okay. So, so, perfect. Yeah. So are there different types of DV? Um, are, are there like, you know, we, we talk about coercive control. That's what my people are all on top of. Are there other types that, that people should be aware of? Yes, yeah, so, so researchers and acad academics have kind of come up with three 
basic categories, three different types of domestic violence. Um, one is situational couple violence. And so in, in our vernacular, we call those the one-offs. So it is something, um, the, the easiest example is that, let's say that one person got fired from their job, had a bad day, came home early and caught their significant other in um, a compromising relationship with someone who is not them and things just go, things just escalate and, and maybe one person or the other Mm -hmm. uh, commits an act of domestic violence where whether they push or shove or hit or throw something or break something, you know, smash the phone, whatever happens, were it not for that situation and that, that um, whole intersection of bad experiences, that may never have happened. So the situational couple violence does not include a cyclical ongoing pattern of power and control. So that is one category. Those people just the same have to be arrested. They have committed a crime involving a current or former intimate partner. So they must be arrested. They normally go through the system and we never hear from them again. Mm -hmm. The other is violent resistance. Violent resistance is more or less that self-defending victim. So they are using violence. It is an intimate partner. And um, an example of that might be a person who is the primary victim in that relationship and it's their intimate partner. So they get to recognize those signals and perhaps they know that um, they can tell that things are escalating and that they are about to be assaulted or hit or harmed in some way. And in this situation, they don't wait. They act in self-defense preemptively. And so that is, that is a case where you would definitely want to do your predominant aggressor analysis and determine what else is underlying this act. So that would be the violent resistance, also known as self-defense or self-defending victim. Mm -hmm. And then of course, the third and final and most concerning and dangerous category is the coercive controlling violence. And that is, um, probably going to be what we, well, that is what we're going to talk about today, because that is that coercive control. And, and that is all of those underpinnings where there's a lot of control going on, a lot of manipulation going on in that relationship. Some of it is overt, some is covert. A victim may not even recognize that they are being um, manipulated by the, the puppet master. Mm -hmm. And that coercive controlling violence is the one that is more prone to result in physical violence and a pattern of abuse. Mm -hmm. And it is that type of violence that is, that is most frequently reported to law enforcement. And so those are the three types. Coercive controlling violence is almost um, almost certainly going to um, escalate in severity and frequency. So that is the type of violence that is most concerning. And, and course of control is, you know, this is my playground. This is where my, my clients are in that bucket um, of, again, we have plenty that have had 17 bones broken, right? We, we cross the line and, and there are that very severe person that, that goes from narcissistic manipulation and tactics to, you know, actual physical violence. So, um, but in the course of control world, um, you know, is it always a crime? Because in, in um, like the UK, everyone's always going, we need laws like that here because in the UK, they've got this law. And is it always a crime? No, in fact, that's what complicates things. And that's what's so frustrating is that it is harmful. It is likely very emotionally devastating and it feels awful. And it's, it's frequently part of that underpinning of that eventual physical violence and that escalating pattern of abuse. But for example, it's, it's frequently not a crime. It is not a crime 
to hurt somebody's feelings. Um, and now with some recent Supreme Court um, um, rulings, it, the First Amendment actually protects abusers from, from being arrested for name calling and saying things that are harmful and hurtful because they have the First Amendment right to call you whatever vulgar name comes to mind. Um, and, and it's also not, it's not a crime to convince your intimate partner that you should um, move out of state away from family and friends and they can spin it. I'll have a better job. Um, Colorado or California or Nevada, wherever, you know, there's just a better chance for a fresh start. And so it's, so those isolation tactics can set in and it's not against the law to convince your intimate partner that, you know, you don't have to work. I'll take care of us. We can get by on one income. You can, you can be a stay at home parent. You can, um, you know, you, you don't need to work. But then when you look at the, the way that trickles down mm -hmm. is, okay, well, I'm the one working, so we don't need two cars. You can take me to work and have the car all day, but pretty soon I need the car. So then that, that mutual decision to be a stay-at-home um, partner could then lead to that financial coercion that is also not illegal. It is not illegal to say that I'm going to be the one in charge of paying the bills. I'm going to be the one with the password, um, the passcodes to all of our accounts. Don't you worry about it. A lot of times it seems like a good idea. And it's not illegal for someone to have affairs and threaten to leave you. Um, if, if you have immigration concerns, it's also not against the law to say, you know, I, I can just call and I can have you deported. Now, it does become part of a crime if there is an act of violence and a victim says, I'm going to call and report what you just did to me. And then if the abuser says, well, I'll have you deported if you say anything in Colorado, there's a new law that that is a felony. It falls under extortion. So if a person in Colorado is being threatened with deportation as um, a consequence for reporting violence that is being committed against them, that's extortion. So, but just the simple phrase, I can have you deported, that's not illegal. Or I'm going to call social services and tell them that you're abusing pills. That person may in fact be abusing pills. Mm -hmm. So it's it's how that knowledge is is used and it's kind of interwoven with that dynamic. So within those coercive controlling patterns of violence in those relationships, violence, the physical violence is just part of it. It's a tool. Mm -hmm. It's it's one element of that whole pattern. So those ongoing threats, those ongoing statements that that financial um, coercion, that those, the, the, yeah, the, I mean, and finances are a huge reason why um, victims of domestic violence, but especially this coercive controlling um, variety are forced to make really hard decisions. It's, it's really hard to stay in that relationship because of those situations. It's also hard to leave. It's very hard to leave if you have a $20 bill in your purse and one or two or three kids and you don't have the car yeah. and you don't, you don't have access to the family resources. And sometimes I've had cases where the victims came from very affluent families, they, they had nice lifestyles, they had nice cars, nice clothing, but they were being systematically, physically abused, strangled, uh, threatened, uh, you name it, and then subsequently learned that they had been passworded out of all of the family resources and, and they had access to nothing. And so so it, it's, it's very complicated and it, and, and it really impacts every facet of everyday normal normal life, um, and I want to point out there's one other. Um, so I'm a I'm a um, 
I'm a nerd. And so I like information and knowledge. It's important to note that part of this, this dynamic, this dynamic with um, victim decisions and victim choices against the backdrop of offender tactics, it's important to know that about 80% of all victims in these coercive, controlling, violent relationships upon arrest of their abuser are going to recant during some point in that, that mm -hmm. prosecution process. So most are going to recant, which is changing their story, saying it didn't happen. So recanting is a very broad spectrum. Mm -hmm. It can go from minimizing what happened all the way up to that did not happen at all. And it's all my fault is so probably somewhere in the middle. And then among the victims that kind of that kind of don't recant, there are going to be those that minimize and those that ghost us. They they dodge subpoena service, they don't even show up. And so it's it's to be expected. I mean, it's to be expected. And and when you understand those dynamics and those very daunting obstacles and challenges that victims face, we understand that that they're having to make hard decisions. And and so within that coercive control. And all of those benign legal behaviors, there is a, just this system of disempowering that person to feel like they have fewer and fewer options and actually arrange it so that they logistically and realistically have fewer and fewer options and are subject to the ministrations of their abusers. And so then when that violence occurs, then it, it doesn't seem as clear cut as why didn't you leave? Why don't you leave? Why don't you call the police? Why don't you this? Why don't you that? Because, because of all those other elements that have already occurred and created that baseline of vulnerability and um, very, very hard decisions. Like, do I stay? Do I go? What happens here? What happens there? And then, you know, things that trickle down from there. So to answer, that's a very long explanation for no, coercive control is not always illegal. It is not always a crime. And so that makes it really difficult for victims who maybe haven't experienced an actual act of violence, something that does rise to probable cause. It doesn't rise to criminal. It doesn't mean it's not horrible. And when we get reports like that and there isn't a crime, we like to, um, we encourage those, those uh, people to, those victims to work with community-based organizations where they have um, free and usually free, but definitely confidential services. And they can kind of work toward some kind of safety planning, maybe an escape plan. And if things do rise to a crime, um, to help them have the confidence to report or, you know, so on. Absolutely. And again, so many people that I know who have been physically abused, um, they just report, if they report it, then the panic happens. I shouldn't have done that. Why did I do that? I'm just going to get in trouble. I don't have a way out. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, um, you know, it's better for them, obviously, to report it. It's on the record then. Um, but again, so many victims are in that power and control situation where they don't have access to money, access to leave, and now they've got, like, shit to pay. This is going to, they're going to be paying the price for that phone call for the rest of their life that they're with this person and they don't see a way out. So they're trapped. And then that's why they just don't show up or they recant. They're scared to death of what would happen in the home versus the, the, the what could happen to them. They don't have a way out. And it's so scary for them, I know. Uh, yeah, and I, and I call that under the global thought package of tomorrow's coming. Tomorrow is coming. Mm -hmm. um, I once arrested, when I was still in patrol, I arrested um, the husband in this couple on a, I think it was on a Friday. And... Um, and he had just been paid and he had cashed his check. I believe he had, I, 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 I'm going from memory, but I think it was $800 cash in his pocket. 
the his wife, the victim, asked if we could get the money because rent was due. So while I'm booking him, I asked if he could kindly provide that rent money to his spouse. And he said, no. Mm. He's like, nope. Yeah. It's my money and I'm not giving it to her. And so it is not a shock or a surprise to know that before the end of my shift that she was calling and saying, I exaggerated. It didn't really happen that way. I, I think I was just mad at him because rent was due and he had all the family resources in his pocket that went to jail with him. It's his money. We couldn't take it. It was his money. Right. And so that is a very stark and immediate tomorrow is coming scenario, but there are also others that are very similar. You know, those, those things of, um, and I know Tracy that you've, you've experienced some of this. If you ever leave me, I will leave you penniless. Mm -hmm. I will have you on the street. Um, in today's climate, I have those sex videos of you. I will publish those. I will send those to your boss. I will send those to your mother. I will have you deported. I will take the kids. And I will take the kids means different things to, in different um, relationships. It could mean I'm going to snatch them and disappear. It could mean I'm going to get a better attorney and get custody. And, um, and I've had those very very ugly um, threats, if you ever this, I will that. I will kill the kids and make you watch. And then I will kill you if you ever try to leave me. If you call the police to report what just happened, that's your future. So, and it goes the whole spectrum. And also let's not forget, these are intimate relationships. There is frequently still a very strong sense of love and commitment that bond. I just want this person to get better. I want them to know I'm not going to take this anymore. That is the only reason I called. By and large, victims call to report these, these situations when they can't manage it on their own anymore. So there are people uh, are not calling for every single act of mm -hmm. violence or abuse. They're not. They're calling when it's gotten too big and they can't control it and they call, things happen, they're expecting the apology, you know, we're all, I think we're all familiar with that cycle of violence, you know, the, the tension building, the, the acute abusive phase followed by the honeymoon mm -hmm. where there's, there are apologies, promises, um, and the apology might be, I, yeah, I, I didn't mean to do that, it's just that you fill in the blank. Exactly. Um, you made me you know, do it because of you that I did this. If you weren't such a blankety blank, then I right. wouldn't have done that. Right. That right. everyone hears and it is is paralyzing. Yeah. So when we're trying to help the people overcome this kind of thing and prepare to leave. Um, I know that documentation is so important, but the question is what matters? I literally got a comment on my on a YouTube video this morning and some guy was like, everyone's telling me document, document. No judge cared about my documentation. No, you know, what matters? So um, this is a phrase I came up with a long time ago. Um, evidence is king. Mm -hmm. So document, document, document. To answer your viewer's question, evidence is, um, physical evidence is so helpful. And physical evidence would be screenshots, of text exchanges, audio recordings of conversations where there were threats, um, preserving items that were um, broken or destroyed during a fight or a situation. Mm -hmm. When you photograph holes in the wall from an argument, and a lot of people don't think that someone punching a hole in the wall during an argument is any big deal, but that is actually a crime. And, and breaking even their own items during an argument, if it's done to intimidate or threaten or make, that, make the victim feel like something bad is going to happen, mm -hmm. that, that's still an arrestable crime. And there's all types of charges that may result from that. So 
if somebody tears your let's let's say you got a new blouse and it was really important to you because you were going to go to your best friend's birthday party and then that coercive control set in and jealousy and the accusations you're cheating i know you're cheating that's the only reason you're wearing that new blouse during the course of the argument they tear the blouse off they cut it into tiny little shredded ribbons well many people are so hurt by that and looking at it is just uh, renders a, a, a trauma response. So they sweep it up and they throw it away. If you're not ready to report, then it would be important to photograph that torn shirt and um, if possible, preserve it. Mm -hmm. um, in Colorado, it is legal to record conversations mm -hmm. and interactions without announcing to the other person that they're being recorded. So one person has to know. So that, that helps you avoid being wiretapped by a third party. So for example, if you are preparing your escape plan or you just want documentation in case things get worse and you want to be able to make a report, and you want to start recording, like let's say you're recording um, or you're having contentious child exchanges, but not everyone is contentious. I would recommend that you record every child exchange because that way it looks, it's, it's more, um, I think it's more transparent and it shows that you record every single child exchange and some of them are fine, some are maybe friendly, some are just neutral, benign, and then some are contentious and, and very ugly. Well, if you're only recording the ugly ones, it looks different, right? It's not, there's nothing wrong with recording the ugly one. Right. But it just looks, it's just cleaner if you record every single child exchange and you can show like the escalation, what happened, you know, what was said instead of starting to record mid midstream. So those midstream recordings, a lot of times we have people who are omitting their portion of the escalation. And all of a sudden there's one person calling names and seemingly, you know, being dramatic or, you know, um, and so, so back to the evidence question, screenshots, injury photos um and it's really important that that everything you record has a date time stamp so so it shows when something happened mm -hmm. um you know if you confide in somebody you disclose something um you you know it would it would be important to remember who those people are if you believe you're being stalked keep a log keep a stalker log Mm -hmm. And and you can write when these things are happening. And again, evidence is king. If you believe that someone is um, is coming to your house and you believe that it's an ex or uh, an abuser, you know, can you afford a some kind of surveillance system? Not everybody can, mm -hmm. um, but if you work with some of your community agencies, sometimes they can help with with grants or or you know small smallish donations so you can get you know even a very modest even a game camera you know those have to have batteries reloaded in them but you you know you could put a game camera on your i don't know a so tree and a, does it have to be video or can it be audio with a pen oh it can it can be audio it can be anything yeah um and there are there are uh, um there are like recording devices that look like oh sorry my chair is spinning um recording devices that look like thumb drives oh yeah oh yeah there's so um, many solutions for people and and i know a lot of my clients are are envisioning you know we're saying record when you can i pulled out this list i literally have a list sitting next to my desk right here of what states you can record and what states you can't record in. Yes. I tell people that almost every single day, if if you're in one of those states that it's safe to, to make sure you get that proof and not to hold up the phone and being like, I'm recording you because then they stop. Like, right. you know, it's, right. it's it in a stealth way, even again, having, if, if you only have your phone, turning it over 
on video record, but getting the audio, getting what you can right. better than nothing. Right. And there are, there are some surreptitious apps. I don't, I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. That was, um, but they are voice activated apps. And I actually had one, one lady that I worked with who her relationship was getting progressively more violent and started including strangulation and all kinds of acts of, of very um, egregious and life-threatening violence. And so she downloaded an app that was, it would hide, it was a hidden app. So it was an audio recording, but once it was activated, it wouldn't show that it was recording. So she would, so she started recognizing the signs that something was escalating and things were going to happen. So she would activate that um, app. And so that actually was a critical piece of evidence in that, that, um, that case. Yeah. And, and so you can be creative with it, but also know um, anyone that's experienced um, any form of um, coercive control or violence, phones are, you know, we all live through our phones. It's, it's a miniature computer that you can also make phone calls with, right? And, and so frequently, and, and they're also a lifeline. Your mm -hmm. phone is your lifeline. And so frequently, the first thing that an abuser will take is that phone. So, so understand that too. So, you know, you need to kind of know your abuser, know the pattern know the situation, but you know, that, that is, you know, when you have those recording apps, I'm, I'm looking over at my own phone. I don't have one of those, but, <laughs> but, you know, if, if you have, so use what you use, what you have. Um, some people, in fact, this goes a couple different ways, but sometimes stalkers, that have had access to a home will put recording devices inside the home, cameras, audio, those kinds of things. But at the same time, if you're concerned about those child exchanges, if they happen in your living room or you're afraid of escalating violence and it usually happens in the bedroom or it happens in the family room while you're watching movies or whatever, then, you know, protect yourself, put those devices in there. And a lot of people, that reminds me, Tracy, a lot of, a lot of victims are afraid to provide that evidence. They're afraid to provide um, a whole conversation dialogue on a phone because they have also reacted mm -hmm. and maybe called somebody a name or, you know, told them what they can go do with themselves and all their relatives in no uncertain terms. And so they're afraid that they're going to look bad, okay? Nobody expects you to be perfect. And if someone is calling you names, 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 telling you what's gonna happen, pushing you, shoving you, threatening to take the kids, and you call them a name, I that's actually kind of normal. Like, so- I'm Not gonna get you in trouble it's not going to get you in trouble. I mean, it's, it's really, it's, it's really not. And so, and that's where, that's where, you know, having these, these dialogues, um, you know, the whole conversation is, is actually really good. Other ways of documenting things are, you know, keeping, keeping journals, um, daily journals, sometimes people just keep calendars. And um, I worked with one lady many, many years ago, and she had developed her own code, where she would just have a calendar. And she, I think she had like ABCD letters, and each of those related to an act of violence or a thing that happened. So A, this is completely hypothetical, A would be, um, I, um, was called several names today. B, I got shoved, I got hit, C, and so on and so on. And so they would just keep on the calendar one of those designators for each day. And, and so that's another way of documenting things. Um, you know, if you, if you have access to a safe electronic journal, like mm -hmm. on an iPhone, the Note app, mm -hmm. if your phone is truly protected and it's safe and you feel like you can record your journal, 
record your journal, um, whether it's, you know, narrative style or just bullet point or just those those annotated symbols that mean this something happened. happened. Yeah. Um, you know, and almost everybody confides in a friend. Almost everybody has told somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, and so those those sources of support would also be witness. Could also, yes, could they could help substantiate your experiences when you are ready, if you're a victim, when you're ready to make a report. And just so you know, Tracy, I, I want to tell people that um, a lot of time victims think that too much time has passed. It's been too long and, and they can't report something. If there is evidence that shows that something happened mm -hmm. and it's within the statute of limitations, it is still chargeable. So in Colorado, um, misdemeanor crimes have an 18 month statute of limitations and um, felonies have three years. So if, um, for example, we, we frequently see that with um, incidents of strangulation. Mm -hmm. So someone will be um, strangled or a lot of people use the word choke, it's actually strangled. Um, if they're strangled and, and they're able to report and there's an investigation and that victim discloses that there were other acts of strangulation and they're still in that chargeable window, then, then the abuser can be held accountable for all of them. If there's evidence, and all of those fit within the statute of limitations, then it can be used. And, and as far as evidence, you know, if there are other things that happened, even, you know, that are outside that chargeable statute of limitation range, it's still relevant because it will show the escalation. It'll show this person's experiences within that relationship. And that is meaningful because that shows that these things happened and and it can help eliminate the the, the one-off defense right. wow. so we can show that it's you know it's it's a pattern it's a pattern of um violence it's a pattern of abuse so it's not just this one time it's more times um other ways to document um um you know it, i you know those those are the main things like electronic photographic audio um, physical evidence, things that happen. And, and again, you know, if there are, um, you know, keep track of who you talk to. If, if you rent an apartment and there are holes in the walls or windows that are broken, you know, document who came from a property management and, um, and repaired it. Mm -hmm. You know, here's what happened because that will also give, that will also give a, a specific date that that happened and and you know if so another thing is um a lot of victims who are who are injured and are concerned about the level of their injuries will will go or not go depending on their situation and seek medical evaluation and treatment so in colorado i can't remember how long ago three four or five years ago the law changed and so if it's not serious bodily injury, so it's a minor injury that doesn't include a broken bone, internal injury that could be, um, that could lead to death, things like that. Um, it, is, it is a victim's option to call the police. Mm -hmm. So the doctors aren't mandated to automatically call the police. That's a relatively recent change in the law. Okay. So, but, if a victim goes, <clears throat> if a victim goes to the hospital thinking they just have, um, I don't know, a, a swollen face and it just really hurts, and they're right and they're evaluated and it turns out they do have a fracture, then the doctors must report. So just know that. So um, is that in all states? Because I remember the the coalition in Colorado was trying to get that law passed. So um, I don't know if it's everywhere. I, I don't. Um, I, yeah. I am a, I'm a Colorado only person. And so, don't yes, worry. Don't worry. all right. I want to close up with one thing. We're running short on time here, but if someone has a friend that is going through this, um, how do they help them and, and, you know, get them to a safer place if they can, or how do they help? 
one one way to to really help is to first of all believe believe that person when they're disclosing to you believe them they're trusting you with some very private and serious compelling information so believe them um, don't criticize the person don't say you know your husband your boyfriend your whoever is such an asshole that doesn't help because remember they probably still care about that person and the likelihood that that relationship is over is is actually pretty pretty slim one more nerd fact i have to slip in um most most victims of domestic violence leave a relationship and go back an average of seven times Mm -hmm. So if you are interrupting that natural progression of that relationship and you're telling your friend that their intimate partner is an asshole and you hate them and you've never liked them and that victim is not done with the relationship, then, then there's sometimes a, a bit of alienation between friends mm -hmm. and that cuts off a source of, uh, confidence for that for the victim so believe them don't criticize the person criticize the behavior i'm concerned i don't like how that person treats you you're different now and you can confront them when you believe when they maybe haven't disclosed but you're concerned you see changes you see strangulation marks you see bruises that just cannot be you know when there are thumbprint bruises here it's not because you fell and hit the clothesline you know it's and so ways to bring that up to to open that conversation i'm concerned about you i feel like you're different and ever since you started dating x or ever since you got married or ever since this mm -hmm. i've noticed changes in your behavior and i have noticed those bruises and quite honestly i'm just concerned that they're not accidental they're not benign mm -hmm. um i'm here for you if you ever want to talk I know of a resource, you know, in Boulder County, we're lucky to have the safe shelter of St. Green Valley and SPAN, um, you know, all they have free and confidential sources. I'll go with you. Um, I'm concerned. I'll take you to the doctor. I'm concerned. I can help you, you know, and, and, and it's, it's hard because you, you want to be there for that person. You want to be that supportive person that they rely upon. And, and it's, and it's hard. I've worked with so hundreds of family and friends of victims and frequently they'll say, I couldn't take it anymore. I told them finally, if they didn't leave that relationship, I wasn't going to spend time with them anymore. I wasn't going to talk to them about it anymore. That topic is off limits. I couldn't take it anymore because we kept say, talking. They would come over. They would be tearful. They would be injured. They'd have bruises. I took them to the doctor. They had stitches. And I cannot keep doing this. And so I cut off that relationship. You know, everybody has their limit, and that is hard. But, you know, if you can just breathe through it and say those things, I'm concerned about you because... And then there might be this point, there might be a point when you just really need to call the police, mm -hmm. even if it compromises that relationship. And then, you know, so those are the best ways to help. And then document, like when your friend comes over and they, and they are injured or bruised, take pictures, take pictures. Just say, can I take pictures? I promise that I won't do anything with these until the time is right. I think it's important because so-and-so steals your phone and destroys it and has access to your cloud. So can I take pictures? And then when they're ready to report, then we do have that magical evidence that these things happened and they are on a timeline and we know exactly when it occurred. And we have a supportive person who may be able to move that case forward, even when the victim may have second thoughts. Absolutely. You just made such a valid point. I was writing down. I'm like, oh my God, this is such, such valuable stuff. You know, we're encouraging people to take screenshots of, of terrible text messages and things like that, emails, right? But also the pictures of injuries and things like that. If you are on the same phone plan with them, they're going to delete them off the cloud. 
So, you know, immediately sending them to friends that are trusted, getting them so that and getting them off the cloud so that they don't see it. So you can either put it on another drive. You know, I have an app that every photo I take goes to a Google Drive picture drive. So like they can delete off the cloud, but they would still be living in that place that they might not right. know about. So protecting right. this evidence is vital because if they suspect you're taking pictures and they find it on the phone, it could escalate. So getting yes. and keeping it safe are such like they have to go together. Right. And and a lot of a lot of victims also utilize um burner phones so you can get a a, a pre a prepaid a, a nice actual smartphone for a hundred dollars and those those prepaid cards are you know whatever they cost so it's relatively affordable so many people for safety reasons and for that secret source of data they use burner phones and they take pictures on one phone and that phone is prepaid so it's not going up to the shared community cloud mm -hmm. it is separate and apart mm -hmm. and so there is that source as well so use your creativity um you know if if as a victim or a victim's friend you know maybe the victim can leave those burner phones those evidence the go bag the important documents with a trusted friend the extra car key extra cash maybe apply for a credit card that goes to the trusted friends home mm -hmm. family friend you know whomever whomever you trust so know your your trust your circle of trust and really really let those people support you help you protect you and and be and another thing that a friend can do is not just call the police but say i'm concerned i think it's time to call the police i can see that you were strangled you could have died that could have killed you I will go with you to the police department. I will go with you to the hospital. I'll be there every inch of the way. Or another way to be supportive is I'll watch the kids. I'll feed the dog. Mm -hmm. I'm here for you. Yeah. So so the, the main thing and how you help a friend, how you protect a loved one is it's sometimes it's hard. Mm -hmm. Try to be there for them. Try to hold judgment. They are probably not telling you everything. And so just know that whatever their situation is, they're trying to manage it with, with as much dignity and choice as they can. And they're always trying to figure out how they're going to get through today. Mm -hmm. And then tomorrow, when tomorrow comes, they'll figure out how to get through tomorrow. And so patience, loving kindness, and just kind of knowing when you need to act. Wow, thank you so much. This has been a great interview. You are going to help so many people by what you've shared with us today. And, um, you know, I can't thank you enough because this perspective is something we don't get to hear about very often. Um, you know, more likely our, our, uh, our victims are complaining about the cops. They never help, they never help. There are people out there like Sandy that are doing things that have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in your community and they are there to help you everyone. So, you know, thank you, Sandy, for joining us and we will see you again. I know we're gonna talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been an honor. Well, I hope you found that helpful. Um, getting this kind of information is heavy. It was a long thing. So if you're here listening, thank you for staying. This is important stuff that we need to get out there and educate. So if you know someone that is going through domestic violence, please forward them the video, give them answers and send them to my website for more support resources. This is Tracy Malone. Have a great day.